Are you struggling with jealous friends, unexpected temptations, or even big battles? These can be difficult to navigate. But Dr. David Jeremiah, through his study on King David in The Tender Warrior, teaches you what you can do when you face these situations. This month, when you give a gift of $120 or more to Turning Point, we'll send you the complete two-part CD album, study guide set, and the God Shot devotional. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. God's forgiveness of sin is amazing. In fact, only one thing could be better, and that's never having to experience it in the first place. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah offers a reminder that being forgiven for sin doesn't exempt you from its consequences. With a look at the fallout from David's sin and God's grace, here's Dr. Jeremiah with the conclusion of his message, The Scar Tissue of Sin. And thank you for joining us today. Before we get into our lesson, I want to tell you a little bit about our tour to Israel, which is going to take place in March of 2024. I have one of the brochures here with me at the desk, and on the front cover is a picture of the boat that we get on when we go to the Sea of Galilee. And I say boat because um, what we do is we we connect uh, six or seven boats together and create an auditorium in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's the, it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. All the boats gather together and, and kind of like in a an arena format. We have a little platform there and, a, and there's sound system and we have great worship and we teach the Word of God and fellowship with each other. Everybody says, if you didn't do anything else when you go to Israel, it's worth it for that one moment. It's always one of our favorite things, and that's the service we have on the Sea of Galilee. Friends, I hope you can come with us. Uh, we're, we're going to be in Israel in 2024 in the month of March, the 12th through the 22nd. We're going to have great uh, music and teaching and and leadership and special guides on every bus and Wonderful travel in, in beautiful new uh, coach buses, all kinds of great meals, beautiful hotels, uh, all kinds of help with your luggage. I mean, I can't tell you how much fun it is to do this and how much I would love it if you could come with us. Don't miss this opportunity. We never know how long we're going to be able to do this thing to Israel, and uh, this is one time we're going, and I hope you'll come with us. It's March the 12th through the 22nd, and it's just around the corner from the end of the year, so make sure you get your reservation. Today we're going to pick up where we left off on Friday, and we're going to finish our discussion of the scar tissue of sin. When we see David's confession, the first question we have to ask is this. If it took 12 months for God to get through to him, now he's been confronted. Is David simply doing what is normal and natural for a man in a public place to do because he's been caught? Or does he genuinely have sorrow and repentance for his sin? And it is quite evident that David has confessed. For he calls sin what it is. Do you realize how hard it is to come to that place in any of our lives? Do you realize how hard it is to come to the place where you stand before God and say, it's me, O Lord, me. It's not my brother nor my sister, but it's me. I did it. Nobody made me do it. I did it of my own volition. I am guilty and I have done it, Lord. I am responsible. I read a story this week about Frederick II, who was an 18th century king in Prussia. 
He went on an inspection tour of a Belgian prison on an occasion, and when he got there, he was greeted by all the prisoners who were crying at the top of their lungs concerning their innocence and how they had been unjustly imprisoned for something they had not done, all of them crying out to this man who had the power to release them that they were innocent. While he was listening to all of this noise, he looked out of the corner of his eye and he saw a man over in the corner of the prison who was seemingly oblivious to all that was going on around him. And Frederick was taken by this man, so he walked over to where the man was and he said to him, Why are you here? And the prisoner said, For armed robbery, your majesty. And were you guilty? The king asked. Oh, yes, indeed, your majesty. I entirely deserve my punishment. At that, Frederick summoned the jailer and he said, Release this guilty man at once. I will not have him kept in prison where he will corrupt all the fine, innocent people who are around him. It is hard to say, I am guilty, isn't it? But David did it. And that's why when we read of his confession, and we understand the nature of it from Psalm 51, we can now look at his cleansing. Hold your place in Psalm 51 and go back to 2 Samuel 12. And notice in the 13th verse, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord hath also put away thy sin. And all of us want to say amen. Amen. The God who confronts, the God to whom we confess is also the God who can cleanse whether we have been involved in any of the deeds of David or not, who has not had to cry out to God in thanksgiving over and over again for his restoring and forgiving grace. God is a God who can cleanse. And once again, back in Psalm 51, there is an evidence of the real situation that has transpired because just as there was an intensity of words to describe David's sin... There is in this psalm an intensity of words to describe his cleansing. I want you to go back with me now through the 51st psalm, and let me just point them out to you quickly. Notice in verse 1, David speaks of his sins as being blotted out. He prays that his sins might be blotted out. He sees his sins as recorded against him in the courts of heaven, and he prays that his sins might be blotted out, that they might take an eraser and just erase them out of the judgment sheet. Notice, secondly, he prays in verse 2 that his sins might be washed away. David sees his sin as a dark stain upon his heart. And just as when you look in the mirror and realize that you put a pen in your pocket with the cap off, and you see a big black spot on your white shirt, you realize you can't wear that shirt back to work. You either have to get the spot out or change shirts. David looked at his heart and he saw a big black stain on his heart and he prayed, God, wash my sin away. Notice thirdly, he speaks of being cleansed in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from sin. The word cleanse in this Old Testament passage is the term that was used for the cleansing of a leper who was declared defiled before all who were around him. And David said, I have spiritual leprosy. Lord, not only do I want you to blot my sin out 
and to wash the stain in my heart. But I want to be able to walk around not having to say unclean, unclean. I want to be cleansed from my spiritual leprosy. There's one other in the seventh verse. Will you look in the seventh verse of Psalm 51? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Think of it now. David spoke of the forgiveness of God as having his sin blotted out, having it washed away, having it cleansed, having it purged with hyssop. This phrase, purged with hyssop, has a pathetic appropriateness to this particular prayer for this reason. In the Old Testament culture, it was the only way that a Jew could be cleansed from having been defiled by a dead body. If a Jew were to get next to a dead body, it was necessary for him to go through the ceremonial cleansing of having had hyssop and applying that hyssop to himself so that he could be ceremonially cleansed. And David needed to be cleansed from the dead body of Uriah who lay in the grave because of David's sin, and so he cried out for ceremonial cleansing from the hyssop of the Old Testament. And there's an interesting play on words in verse 7 that is too good for me to pass by. Literally, when you come to the end of that first phrase, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, the word at the end of the phrase is a cognate or a word that is connected with the word sin. Literally, what the phrase says is this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be unsinned. Isn't that what we want? We want to be unsinned, don't we? If we have sinned, we want to come to God and say, God, unsin me. Unsin me. And David spoke of his forgiveness and his cleansing as having had it blotted out, having had it cleansed, having had it washed away, and having had himself unsinned. What a wonderful, wonderful picture it is of a gracious, forgiving God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Somebody told me a long time ago that 1 John 1, 9 was God's bar of soap. And often we have had to use that, have we not? As we have come to the Lord and asked for forgiveness and confessed our sin. Well, I suppose that if humans were writing this story, they would end here and say, isn't it wonderful that after conviction came confrontation, and after confrontation came confession, and after confession came cleansing, praise the Lord, and David lived happily ever after. But there's one more point, and that's the consequences. You see, it's hard for us to understand this, but it's true nonetheless that while God can forgive, he cannot make done things undone. He cannot. Uh, Longfellow once wrote, No action, whether foul or fair, is ever done, but it leaves somewhere a record written by fingers ghostly as a blessing or a curse and mostly in the greater weakness or greater strength of the acts which follow it. Longfellow. When we sin and when we disobey God, we quite often set into motion chains of events which even forgiveness will not undo. For instance, all of the college and high school students will comprehend this. When you sit in the exam room 
and the papers are about ready to be passed out for the semester exam. If you are a Christian, you never feel closer to the Lord than in that moment. (laughs) And normally you pray like this, Oh Lord, I should have studied more. Oh God, forgive me for not studying more. And you know he will. But in the process of doing it, he isn't going to put the answers in your head so you can pass the test. At least he never did for me. (laughs) I used to go to class and somebody would get up and I went to a Christian college and somebody get up and pray. Oh, dear God, help us to remember the things we have faithfully studied. And I wanted to scream out loud. I didn't want God to help me remember the things I had faithfully studied. I needed more help than that. I wasn't asking God for justice. I wanted mercy and grace. But see, the point is, sometimes we think that if we sin and we confess our sin and we come to God honestly and we ask for forgiveness and we confess what we have done and God forgives us, that it all goes away. But it doesn't, does it? It doesn't go away. The guilt goes away, but the consequences remain. David set in motion that day when he sinned with Bathsheba and ultimately killed Uriah, a chain of events that plagued him till the day he died. And I promise you, men and women, that there were a thousand times in David's life when he cried out in agony against the moment when he embraced Bathsheba. In the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel, we can only look at it briefly. Verse 7, we read, That Nathan said to David, Thou art the man, and he said, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, I gave thee the master's house, thy master's wives into thy bosom, I gave thee the house of Israel of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have given thee anything that ye wanted. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon, and therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son And David said, I have sinned. And Nathan said, The Lord hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. However, because of this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child that is born unto thee shall surely die. David gives us the cue to what God is going to do. You remember when the story was told him about the little lamb? And David said, the man who has done this, he shall surely die, and the lamb shall be restored unto his owner fourfold. God took the words of David's own mouth, and there were four major things that happened in David's life as the result of his sin that were consequences. I can only briefly tell you about them, and you can read them when you have opportunity. Number one, in this very chapter, the child that was born to David and Bathsheba that was now probably three to four months old became sick. And Bathsheba's little child was very sick. 
It was the child of sin and of shame, but the parents loved that child, and they hung over that child. For seven days the mother watched it, and the father fasted and lay on the earth. And I believe David suffered more when he watched that little baby than he could have ever imagined. He could have wished that ten times that suffering would have been his could he have been relieved of the suffering. For there is no suffering that is worse than that which we observe in others that is our fault and not theirs. But after seven days of fasting and praying, the Bible says that the baby died. There's a strange end to that story that I need to comment on just briefly. For it has given a great deal of encouragement to many parents who have lost little loved ones before the age of accountability. While the child was hanging in the balance between life and death, David fasted and mourned and lay upon the earth. When word came to him that the child was dead, the scripture says he got up and he got dressed and he sat down to eat. And his servant said to him, David, that is very strange actions that we observe. While the child was living, you mourned and fasted. Now the child is dead, and you have put your fasting away and have sat down to eat. And David said, while the child lived, perchance God would repent and allow him to live. The child is dead. I cannot bring the child back to me, but, said David, I shall go to the child. (laughs) And how many times I have shared that passage with parents who have lost loved ones and reminded them that in this Old Testament picture we have a truth that someday we shall be reunited with those little ones that we have lost before they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the pain of that death was a great pain. It had hardly subsided when two years later David's son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. You will find that in the 13th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel. David's son treated his sister just like David had treated Uriah's wife. He took that which was not his to have. Somebody has said that a man never really sees himself, at least the worst of himself, until it reappears in one of his children. (laughs) And I can promise you that with that moment, David recognized again in the second instance that what he had set into motion by his own bad example had corrupted the lives of his own children. The third thing that happened to David as the result of that is recorded for us also in the 13th chapter. Absalom, David's other son, when he heard what Amnon had done to Tamar, his favorite sister, Absalom went and got Amnon and killed his own brother. Remember what Nathan said, the sword shall not depart from your house. And it's interesting to read the narrative, people, because it is quite evident that had David reproved Amnon for what he had done to Tamar and punished him, that there would not have been another sin in his family and that Absalom would never have taken Amnon's life. But how could David reprove Amnon for that which he himself had done? How could he bring his son in and call him on the carpet for a sin of sexual indiscretion when it was quite evident to Amnon that David himself had been involved in a sin of that nature only worse. One of the things that happens, whether we like it or not, and I know that God can overcome this, is that when we step out of line in this area, we often lose the influence over our own children. 
I think of Lot down in Sodom when he lived in that wicked city and finally the judgment of God came on that city and Lot went to get his sons and daughters out and the scripture says they mocked him and they looked at him as if somebody was like he was crazy. He no longer had any influence with his children. So that was the third thing. And the fourth thing, which will take a whole message later on in this series, has to do with the treason and the death of Absalom. And the morning of that is recorded for us. And let me just read it to you in the 18th chapter. Don't turn to it, but listen to it. Absalom was David's favorite, and he loved him in a way you can only love a son. And when Absalom finally was killed, even though he had led a rebellion against his own father, I'll read to you from the scripture David's words. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate, and he wept as he went, and he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And as a father, I can hardly read those words without tears coming to my eyes. Yes, there was conviction. Yes, there was confrontation. Yes, there was confession. Yes, there was cleansing. And yes, there were consequences. David never will face that sin again in judgment. But he set in motion in those days when he walked apart from God's will a series of events which tracked him to his grave with sorrow and pain and grief. So men and women, what is the message? Let me just say to you that it is very simple in my estimation. Two messages. Both of them are prayers. Dear God, thank you for your restoring grace. How grateful I am to stand before you as a man of God and say to you that the God who is the God of this book is a God who has paid the penalty for our sin and he can forgive and restore. God is a restoring God. And I'm sure that there are many individuals and families who have gone through perhaps not what we have talked about today but similar things and you have come to God God's way and you've confessed it and God has forgiven it and he has restored within you a right spirit and given you back the joy of your salvation. But if I could talk with you honestly for a moment you would say, Pastor, yes, there is joy again. Yes, there's the sense of forgiveness. But if I could do it over, if I could do it over. So there's a second message, and I think this is one that we often forget about when we read a passage like this. Men and women, there is a restoring grace. Listen to me carefully. There is also a restraining grace. In Psalm 19, and let me just read to you what it says. In Psalm 19, David prays two prayers, and these are his prayers. In verse 12, he says, Cleanse thou me from secret sin. That's restoring grace. In the very next verse, he says, Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin. That's restraining grace. When I read the story of David, I am both thankful that God forgives, but I also want to pray, Lord, I don't want to go through that experience. 
restrain by your grace this man and keep me holy and righteous before you. There is one thing that is far better than God's forgiveness, and that is never having to experience it. And as I look out over the world in which you and I have been called upon by the Lord to grow up and mature in our faith, I don't think there's ever been a harder time to live righteously before God. Never have we ever needed to pray for one another for the restraining grace of God in our lives as we do right now. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are um, we're almost at the end of our discussion of David's life. Uh, we have several more programs, but we're getting to the end of it. And so if you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to order the resource for the month of July. It's a book called The God Shot by Tara Lee Cobble. And it's about the um, it's about the nature of God. And friends, this is a really cool book because you can read um, for 90 seconds every day, just 90 seconds. It doesn't take very long. Read these short little deals about God and his nature. And every day you learn something more about who God is. You know, we often think about God kind of like the heavenly ATM machine. We go to him for all the stuff we need and that's not what God is all about. I mean, he's there to help us, and he is a God who is a giving God. But we should know about God for who he really is, his glory, his majesty, his holiness. And uh, Tara Lee has really helped us with that, giving us bite-sized visions of God that every one of us can deal with in just a short time every day. This hardback gift-like book is yours for the asking when you send your offering to Turning Point during the month of July. Thank you for your help. It means so much to us, and we need it to keep doing what we're doing. We'll see you next time right here on Turning Point. Our message today came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church and Dr. David Jeremiah, the senior pastor. Your notes of encouragement are always a blessing to us, so please write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, RPO Sawasan Delta BC V4L2M4 Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca/radio or call 800-946-4300 Ask for your copy of The God Shot a devotional focused on God's character by teacher and podcast host Tara Lee Cobble It's yours for a gift of any amount You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app to instantly access our content Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Tender Warrior, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. If you've been blessed by the ministry of Dr. David Jeremiah and Turning Point, we would love to offer you two free ways to stay connected. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash magazine for a subscription to our monthly Turning Points magazine. Each exclusive issue is filled with encouraging articles and daily devotionals to strengthen your spiritual walk. You can also sign up to receive our daily email devotional and be a part of our community of friends who receive daily encouragement delivered straight to their inbox from Dr. Jeremiah. Written in a thought-provoking manner, this concise yet profound daily devotional delivers the refreshment and focus you need as you go about in today's world. You can join the more than 600,000 monthly subscribers who are building their faith each month 
through these free resources. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Roy Zuck, recalled sitting on an airplane next to a retired surgeon. The doctor told him, I've practiced medicine for 58 years and I've never known a person to die from laughter. The vaudeville comedy team of Abbott and Costello actually took out a $100,000 insurance policy with Lloyd's of London that would pay if anyone died laughing at their show. Well, it's not likely that we will die from something God says is good for us. Solomon wrote that a merry heart is like medicine for the soul, so enjoy a good wholesome laugh today. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's reasons to make merry on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.